Done. Awesome. So because all leaders deserve to have support, they need to excel, grow, and thrive. Creek supports mid-level, mid-career leaders and executives in the most difficult time of their lives and careers. Adam Creek, welcome to the podcast. Well, Glenn, it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Awesome. So I'm really grateful you're able to kind of give your time today and share your story with the audience. And I actually have one story I want to share with you before we get into it. So as much as I've been a fan of your career for a while now, we've actually met before. Okay. And it's it's a good story. I think you'll get a kick out of it. I'm really intrigued. I want to share this with you right away before we get into the show. Um, you guys had just, you had just won. I was 12 years old, 12, 13. You had just won um, your Olympic medal, your Olympic gold medal from Beijing. And you did a speech at my, at my elementary school in Sudbury at Arobidi. And I was there and met you and we like chewed the fat. I was like 12. I have like a, I have my first Facebook profile. I was just telling my girlfriend is like me with your medal that you had brought. And then I remember not having anything for you to like autograph. So I like grabbed a tag and ripped it off the thing. I was like, this is sick. Yeah, I'm just a big fan of the Olympics then. And um, I am now as well. So being able to kind of do that, I was like, I know he's not going to remember, but I think I, I definitely want to share that. So thank you for doing the show. And uh, yeah. Well, I definitely remember going to those schools and, you know, signing ripped off tags and kids, kids will come up with tags or shoes or uh, it's or random pieces of paraphernalia for me to sign. That was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> You know, back in the day, that's that's probably 10, 15 years ago now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. At least. Yeah, probably like right in the middle of that. Um, yeah. So we'll get into it then. Um, take us through so people kind of know and understand who you are and where you're coming from. Take us through your story from your transition leaving post-secondary, like that time frame, and then we'll uh, go full circle. Yeah, we'll go for a full circle. Yeah. So right now I'm an executive business coach. I work one-on-one with leaders. I run a strategy team, strategy sessions for senior leadership teams, and then I deliver keynote speeches. Uh, and that, you know, getting to where I am right now from high school was you know, a non-traditional path, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Yeah. You know, as I was going through high school, I was a little hesitant about going to university because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to take a degree or study something that I would use growing up. I remember that right. being a big concern and thinking, I don't want to go to school and just get a, you know, just get an English degree and then not have something that I would be using uh, completely. So I took time off after high school. I had a friend who had worked in Alberta and worked on the oil rigs up in Northern Alberta. So I set my sights on the oil rigs and I hopped on a train. So I had one, here's the thing, last year of high school, I got on a football recruiting trip to McMaster University. And at halftime, I participated in a pie eating contest where I... I ate two pumpkin pies faster than anyone else in that contest. And by winning that, I got uh, a $250 via rail pass on Come the on. train and 250 bucks. <laughs> and I used that to purchase a you know, one-way ticket to Alberta where I registered for the petroleum industry training service. Yeah. I took a six-week course. Uh, and as I waited for that, I picked up a temporary job building a Canadian tire and filling things out. I took that course. Then I started getting jobs on the oil rigs. Uh, while I was taking the course, I was, a, uh, I was living with a family in the south of Edmonton and biking down to Leduc. So it was about an hour bike ride. And the you know, and after they saw that I was biking down for a couple of weeks, they looked at me kind of funny. To me, it was normal. Oh, I'm just going to bike for an hour and then show up for eight hours of class and bike home for an hour. It's just a normal thing to do. Yeah. I said, well, this kid wants to work, right? And he's got the energy. And so I performed well enough in the, in the course and I got a job with a, a, with a drilling company. So I worked first as a lease hand, then a roughneck, then a motorman, you know, on the oil rigs for about a year. 
And that was a really interesting experience, especially straight out of high school. Yeah. I made a ton of money uh, that also helped fuel my education and eventually my athletic career after that. I, I had a turning point about mm, six months into that work engagement where I was working in a, an accumulator shack, which is a place where all the hydraulics come together. I guess they're accumulated in, uh, <laughs> in a big machine in a big yeah. machine called the accumulator uh, where you, you manage all the hydraulics. And I was sitting there and I was scrubbing it. I was cleaning it. And there was a, uh, you know, my manager came up to me and was kind of yelling at me, wasn't a very nice guy and didn't really, <laughs> had, had anger issues and took them out on me. I remember scrubbing there, scrubbing them and then thinking back to a conversation I'd had with the geologist. You know, part of my job was to pick up samples that were coming out of this thing called a shaker and bring them to the geology shack. And I dropped it off and he was looking at the samples under a microscope. He was warm and I asked him how much he was getting paid and he was getting paid about four times as much as me. And I thought, huh, I think I'd rather be the geologist, yeah. I'm a bit more of my own boss. I'm not dealing with, with jerks and assholes. And uh, yeah, I, think I, could, I think I could do that. So I had the idea that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, you know, a you know, geotechnical engineer or a geologist, someone who was working in the resource economy. That and as I was scrubbing the accumulator shack, I had flashbacks to uh, my high school sporting experience where I had you know, I'd played a number of different sports, basketball, football, and rowing. But rowing was the one that captured my heart and Certainly my coach had said I had great potential and uh, he had taken me aside when I was 16 and said, Hey, Adam, you're an Olympian. You just don't know it yet. Amazing. And, and so he had planted that seed of, Oh, this is what you could do. And the path for, uh, for going to the Olympics as a rower was to, you know, develop your skills through a university program, then try out for the national team, see if you could make a, you know, a more junior national team and then make the national team, then make the Olympic team. So I moved to, you know, after that accumulator shack, you know, epiphany, I ended up taking a flight from, uh, you know, I was working up somewhere up north, uh, and I'm forgetting where it was, uh, maybe the Peace River area in north, northern Alberta. Oh, geez. And then I came down to Edmonton, and I flew to Victoria, and I went from minus 50 degree weather to it was one of these like plus 14 days yes. in that that's what i'm talking about <laughs> yes <laughs> old Sunday oh, yeah. boy oh yeah <laughs> you know the cold oh yeah do we and ever came, and so then i came down here and i thought well i could deal with this weather and two i visited the rowing coach who was excited to you know have me come down and, and you know and try out for the university of victoria rowing team mm -hmm. so I came down and I rode with the university team for two years. I started my, my studies. And after the first summer, I made the under 23 national team. We went to Linz, Austria. We won the world championships for under 23s. And, and that pushed me towards uh, trying out and making the senior national team that next year where I ended up going to Seville, Spain, where we won the world championships as well. Uh, after that, we, we, we had a really good team, a really great coach, and we were making a push for the Olympics. So I dropped out of university and I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on this Olympic dream. That's more important. I can keep my going on my schooling whenever I want. Right. So I, I went and I spent the next two years focused on that Olympic dream, Olympic journey. We won, uh, a bunch of world cup races, and uh, the world championship in Milan, Italy. Then we went to the Olympics in 2004 as the favorites expecting to win. And we choked, we fell apart at the Athens Olympics. So that was devastating. But over the process of going there, I was introduced to, uh, you know, to the coach of the Stanford rowing team who was building a program down there. He was the previous coach of one of my teammates, Jake Wetzel. So Craig Amerconian from Stanford University recruited me to come down as a bit of a player coach to come and 
uh, and row for the Stanford team, as well as coach some of the younger guys. And when I came back to, to school, uh, everyone joked, they called me old man Creek because I was 24 and they were you know, aged 18 to oh, yeah. 21. So that's big difference. Big, big difference, difference at, that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> at that, that age. But there I was. Uh, and I was also came down as, uh, you know, I was engaged uh, to the woman I eventually married. And so nice. that blew people's minds too, right? Like you only, <laughs> only one more vagina for the rest of your life. Uh, what is, how, what's, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> <laughs> but there we Amazing. were <laughs> and uh, you know there i was this older guy you know engaged in a serious long-term relationship and uh you know younger guys just uh you know coaching them and and i finished up my degree there i enjoyed the challenge i enjoyed uh studying earth sciences and we got to a turning point where I had uh, one of my professors had offered me a full ride scholarship to get my master's degree at Stanford University in petroleum engineering. Okay. I was uh, I was interested in biofuels and biodiesel. I had built a biodiesel reactor as my senior thesis project. Jeez. And, uh, and so I was turning waste cooking oil into fuel uh, for my car. And then my wife was also studying behavior change and climate change and was, you know, interested in getting her PhD and had lines on, um, you know, getting her PhD down there. So we were, we had this opportunity in this debate uh, and this trying to figure out what is the right decision to make. Yeah. Because we either had the decision to stay in California in the Bay Area, which is very you know, very engaging, uh, a wonderful place to be, you know, the Stanford campus, which I still have wonderful memories of to this day, you know, which is, uh, or come up and pursue the Olympic dream. Uh, my wife, you know, she is very concerned about climate change at the time and mm -hmm. wanted to write policy for the provincial government of British Columbia. So we ended up going through a decision-making matrix and I can share it with you after this. Yeah, please. I'm really intrigued. Like, and it would be useful for your, um, you know, probably for your listeners and that the decision-making yeah. matrix, especially when you're a young person, you, you have a lot of really good opportunities and yeah. the challenge is it you know, often deciding between a good choice and a bad choice. It's, or even a good choice and a great choice I've found as yes. well. Cause it's like, Oh, they both, Oh, they're so good. It's like, well, It'd be, I wish it was great and really bad. It'd be a lot easier, but mm -hmm. oh, geez. Yeah. So we, and the process is pretty simple. You know, one, you know, determine what your must haves are uh, and make sure that both of your options are things that you, you know, you can achieve your must haves through both options. Mm -hmm. And then once you understand that, uh, writing down the pros and cons for each choice and then you turn the cons into positive statements because uh, often we have we're, we let our decisions be driven by fear versus driven by opportunity. Right. Very and true. so by we then switch, you know, switch it. So you have supporting arguments for each choice. Yeah. And then you go through and you rank each choice from a scale of one to 10. And that gives you a Jeez. clarity of, of choice. And we basically went through that to decide do we follow this opportunity in California? Do we, or do we go back up? And we came up to Canada. We moved on to a float home on Fisherman's Wharf, where we lived there on a home floating on the water, which was pretty wonderful. Yeah. What was and that like? Romantic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> you, you wake up in the morning and the, oh, actually geez. when it's stormy, it was horrible. To be honest, it was the worst when the wind was blowing. That was awful because you're there's a lot mild amount of terror. Uh, but then when the weather's calm and nice, it was very very beautiful. Uh, we even had hole. We had a hole in the bottom of the floor uh, that we would open up and throw fish guts down, and the seals would come up. And come on, yeah, <laughs> amazing, amazing. So it was a great it was a great place to live as a young couple, and uh, we. We lived there, and uh, my wife wrote policy for the uh, for the BC government. Worked with the premier's office, and then I pursued the Olympic dream. I joined back up with a really incredible group of of guys, and uh, we had a great coach, great support staff, 
and everything came together this time. We won the Munich World Championships, then we won the Olympics in 2008, yeah. Epic. Which, which was, you know, ultimate great thrill and an incredible sporting experience. Mm-hmm. So the sporting experience then led to a, you know, you know, okay, now what's next? So again, yeah. the, the same sort of thing you're dealing with after high school or after university, you're still dealing with after, you know, after sport. So Olympic athletes, professional athletes, you know, deal with this, you know, at that point in time in that transition. Right. For me, I was, and still am very entrepreneurial. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to, you know, forge my own path, do things in my own way. So I started a biofuel company and uh, started speaking more professionally. And that's how you and I met up with one another in, yeah. in Sudbury. Amazing. Uh, I was up there, I think, with an organization called Clean Air Champions, if I remember appropriately. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> how we were, I couldn't remember for the life of me, man. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were encouraging active transportation, you know, ride your bike to school or... Um, you know, walk to school a little bit more. And if you, you did that, you'd get a prize. Uh, the, and so I traveled around, I, I did, you know, I had some experience when I was an athlete visiting schools and doing school visits. And, and even afterwards I did, did that a bit, but I, I had my focus more on, you know, mid-career leaders. And I was, mm-hmm. I was thrust into that and I began to focus my messaging on, you know, teamwork, leadership, uh, managing change, uh, you know, setting goals, uh, that sort of thing. And I was, you know, I struggled for a while to figure out how my story and my message would actually, could actually resonate with people who were working, you know, had a working life and mm-hmm. were, you know, beginning to raise a family and, you know, dealing with, you know, the change, the headaches of, uh, of organizational life. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I started simply by dialing in my story, you know, understanding my archetypal story, which is a great, um, is a great tool. And I think it's good from a personal development standpoint. 100%. You know, so the story was, you know, here I was a, and this is the one I, I still tell, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. kid. I grew up in London, Ontario, in Southwestern Ontario, an average kid, an average town. And I was excited to grow up and kind of live an average life. And everything changed when my coach took me aside and said, Hey, look, you're an Olympian. You just don't know it yet. And that planted a seed and that kept popping up. Even when I was, you know, I decided to take my own path and go to, you know, go work on the oil rigs and do, you know, and jump into career life. But that, you know, weight, the weight of potential is a, is a heavy weight, especially when you're young, mm-hmm. when you're a young adult. And so I took that and I met, you know, incredible people. I had a great coach, this British coach who'd say things like, Hey, friendships, they come and go, but gold medals, they last forever. He's not wrong. <laughs> No, not wrong. no. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, and we went through various challenges. You know, we, you know, we failed at the Athens Olympics. We had uh, personality challenges. You just had the challenge of trying to push yourself to, you know, to excellence. And we came away, we came away as, as victors in 2008. And the biggest lesson that I took from that journey and from this archetypal journey is that success isn't final and failure isn't fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. That is the biggest lesson, you know, the lesson that, you know, achievements are great in the moment of achievement and failures are horrible in the moments of failure. And especially when you're a young adult, you experience big failures and they are, they are of a large size when Mm -hmm. you are, you know, in your twenties, in your thirties, they are, and they feel like they're of a large size and your job in early adulthood is to achieve things. Your job in your twenties and thirties is to achieve things, to prove to yourself that you can, you can achieve, you can, you can set your mind to a goal and you can accomplish it. That is your job. And then, you know, as you transition 
into uh, middle uh, adulthood, you, know, you start to take um, uh, take account of all the choices that you've made in your life. And you've made choices which have led you down a certain path. And there's going to be some regrets that you have with those choices. And you're going to feel are restricted and constrained because you have responsibilities. Maybe you have a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's typically the most challenging time, the least happy time scientifically in your life. And then as you move through and you start to understand and lean into you know, the life that you have in middle life, uh, you move into late staged adulthood where your most concern, your biggest concerns are, you know, the love and relationships that you have in your life and living in full, living with full integrity with who you are. And the people who have the biggest issues late in life are the ones who don't discover who they are. Um, uh, and, uh, and they don't live integrity with themselves. They destroy relationships along the way uh, and they don't achieve anything of note while they're younger. Uh, so the it's yeah, really important in your young adulthood when you're leaving high school, when you're early in your career, that you do you do have the energy and the opportunity. There's so many opportunities to go in many different directions, mm-hmm. but I think from what I see from uh, if I was to give one piece of advice to people leaving, uh, to, you know, to leaving high school, is to set your sight on something and look to achieve it. And that comes back to my life lesson that I learned is in, in that phase that hopefully the listeners can learn is success isn't final. Failure isn't fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. And by, by achieving and failing and gaining the wins in the process and uh, taking stock of the losses, we understand who we are and what our place is. And we're able to find more peace in, in progress and more peace in the path. And that's, you know, that's what I learned, I suppose, coming back to this idea of, um, you know, of, of delivering speeches after the Olympics, you know, the archetypal story and, and how that helped. Then that as I started delivering speeches, I got involved in a few other businesses. One was this rowboat making business here in Victoria, BC, and I was helping them promote and sell and uh, deliver their boats all around the world. And through them, I met this guy in Seattle, Jordan Hansen, who loved to row. And he had this program where he wanted to row across the Atlantic Ocean. Amazing. And he and I joined up and we said, let's do this. We raised, you know, half a million dollars from (laughs) put that together and (laughs) put together a boat and uh, shipped it over to Africa and rode after four years. It took four years of planning and, you know, and selling and going out there. And I was I think I was lucky because I was in the public speaking world and I was constantly exposed to new audiences. Mm-hmm. And that was part of my speech at the end. You know, what are you doing next? I'm rowing across the ocean. Does anyone want to help me? And people ah, that's were, brilliant, by the way. Yeah, people wanted to. And eventually the biggest, the way I found our title sponsor who ended up giving us, you know, over a quarter of a million of dollars. Uh, I was, I talked my way into this place called the sponsorship forum where they, the guy opened it up, uh, Mark, I believe his name was, and he said, hey, does anyone have any questions here? Anyone want to say anything? And I just, without thinking, I shot my hand up and they puts the mic in front of me and you have this, you know, <laughs> where your throat starts to close up and your heart starts beating. I had one of those moments where I'm like, holy crap, what am I going to do? And get up, oh, hi, my name is Adam Creek. I just went to the Olympics. I won a gold medal. And now uh, myself and three, uh, three gentlemen, we're going to row across the ocean. We're looking for sponsors. So we, through that, I get attracted to this, or this, this guy comes up to me and talks to me uh, and says, Hey man, I, I love what you're doing. I want to introduce you to, you know, this person, I want to help you out. So he introduces me to uh, one person who introduces me to another person who introduces me to uh, the person who eventually becomes our title sponsor. And after interacting with them about half a dozen times, they sign on the dotted line and we, you know, we get the money in the bank and the expedition is a go. And then the moment we had them, it was easier to just start piecing together a bunch of these other, you know, 10, $15,000 
uh, sponsors to yeah. um, you know, to sponsor the event. And the, you know, it wasn't just about rowing across the ocean. Of course, it was about educating youth. We uh, we interacted with I think it was about thirty five thousand kids in schools in America, Canada, and West Africa, and we had eight different science experiments on our boat. And so that that was the bigger vision that attracted the sponsorship because people don't want to sponsor your adventure. They want to sponsor a, you know, a project. That yeah, is... like a cause or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Eh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense for sure. Yeah. And so that's, you know, and that sort of drives in, are you, you know, into what I do now, which is about understanding truly what you value and what are the, you know, what are the values that you are uh, representing? And, and one of the pieces of our, uh, of our row was certainly about generous impact and giving back. And again, you know, talking about this lesson I learned from the Olympic journey, success isn't final, failure isn't fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts that, you know, where does that courage to continue come from? Mm-hmm. Because life can be tough and things don't always work out. Well, the courage to continue comes from the ability to live in alignment with your values. You live in alignment with your authentic self to uh, make sure that you understand what your purpose is and to have the right heart set. Uh, you know, courage is the combination of, uh, you know, you know, of love and negative emotions. So love and fear or love and uh, regret or love and uh, resentment. And you try to put it together and keep moving forward to figure out, you know, what that next step is. And the, one of the easiest tools I've found to do that is by understanding what you value, what your purpose is, and making sure that you're making decisions in alignment with that. And when you, when you fail in alignment with your values, when you fail in alignment with your purpose, that failure stings less and you can find more, like more benefit from it and more, you know, more sprouts out of it. And that, that was the story, I suppose, of our row across the ocean, because after we launched 73 days in our boat capsized, we didn't make it to the other side. And again, it wasn't just that we, we capsized. We had 35,000 school kids watching us when we capsized. So picture yeah. the, teachers, the kids who are watching. <laughs> like, oh, look, the, <laughs> these guys that we're following, are they going to be okay? Ooh. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> no kidding. <laughs> so Jeez. that, that felt like a failure, but at the, end of the day you know we set our like we set the goal in alignment with our values with these ideals of you know of service of science of giving back and uh you know and yeah sharing this experience with so many other people and that really made the adventure actually feel like some odd kind of success uh even though we didn't achieve our main objective you know we were successful from a safety standpoint and we created what we called uh, you know, on a happy fail, you know, when you fail, when things don't work out, but it tends at working, working out well for, well for us. And so then after that, you know, after that event, uh, I got back home, we were working on our second child or the second child got born and I got back on the speaking circuit and, built out a, I had a Ted talk, delivered a Ted talk. That was a big accomplishment then. And then wrote a book, published a book. And as time progressed, I moved from uh, just speaking and sharing my story into uh, developing leaders with tools and toolkits. So helping leaders understand what drives them. So uh, you know, better understanding their personality, their values, their, their core basic needs, um, helping leaders understand the mechanics of, uh, of business administration. So how do you run better meetings? How do you make sure that uh, you have the right strategy? Do you have an execution framework? Uh, you know, great side story. I've been working with one of my old teammates to build a mortgage company is now the fastest growing mortgage brokerage in Canada. Amazing. And, we, and so we, we laugh as we integrate a lot of these systems because 
it was a lot of these systems we use in business were just like we used as an Olympic athlete. You know, how do you motivate people to do the work and <laughs> get people you know, driven and, uh, and set up the reward structure, set up the support structure, uh, set up uh, the reporting structure so that people are, are engaged, motivated, and the company makes profit. And it's, it's really mind blowing how, uh, how well the business is doing and, uh, and how by just applying the lessons of sport to business uh, can drive tremendous success. And, you know, I've seen it in uh, obviously another number of other industries, you know, I do a lot of work in the aerospace industry, uh, finance, um, and even within like municipal governments and, uh, you know, federal governments, military, we're doing a lot of work with the military as well, which is interesting. We just did a training with a bunch of reservists who are going over to uh, Latvia and, uh, you know, on the border of the Ukraine. Jeez. Yeah, no kidding. So there's, you know, there's a lot of transfer from the skills that, you know, we've, you know, I learned through sport, but then that's accentuated just through you know, being exposed to the different levels of, uh, of of leadership through my role as a as a speaker, which has now turned into a, a trainer and a coach to support you know sport leaders in their careers. You know, help them have a bigger impact, help them you know get the earnings they want, the independence they want, and uh, and also you know you know attain the the you know, the, the leadership impact they want uh, and that will drive them forward. And a lot of it comes to, you know, back to this idea of making sure that we're living in alignment with our values that are, you know, our goals are fulfilling our purpose and we're, you know, we're setting the right boundaries in our life to, you know, to achieve our, our, our end goals. And cause you have to create a life strategy where you're saying no, no to many things yeah, which is tough <laughs> to, to do say, yeah to say tough yes to, to the do. right things so that's i guess that's that's the general story so amazing to oil rig to university athlete to university dropout olympic failure uh university success to olympic success to post olympics you know, building a biofuel company, which I didn't get into too much where it grew, it failed, it's still alive. It's, it's been rebuilt a few times uh, and I'm still uh, involved as a director. Uh, but I've, you know, rowing across the ocean and turning a, uh, a motivational speaking career into a, uh, a consulting and coaching uh, career uh, where I, st I still do keynotes, which I do mm -hmm. enjoy, but the, um, I'm mostly, I, I see, I have a much bigger impact in these one-on-one, -on -one, uh, yeah. in, in engagement. So that's, uh, truly what, you know, what I love to do. It's a different way of connecting with somebody when they're in just the one-on-one, one-on-ones or relationship or the communication that just, I find in group settings, it's tough because you, you feel a bit of a disconnect, right, from people. And especially if you don't feel that what the person might be talking to is relevant to you, you tune out more than just what they just said that might not be relevant. Where it's like, if it's you and I, it's, it's just you and I, right? There's mm -hmm. no, you're talking to three other people. It's no. So that's, yeah. So that, that's interesting. Um, what I'm curious about, there's a few things. Um, when it, I've talked to a handful of Olympians on the show and just friends and family, whatever, they always talk about when you achieve like a really big, like potential fulfilled almost in uh, your case with the, um, with the rowing Olympic gold medal, how do you like, what's that after shock? Like, like you've reached it. Like, what is, is there a depression or is there like a, just a switch of like, Oh, on to the next thing. And if there is the depression, like, what, how do you, how do you bounce back out of that? What's well, that there like? is, well, there is an element of, uh, you know, of depression that comes afterwards because, you know, as you get closer and closer to a goal, you, you know, your brain naturally, naturally releases more, you know, neurotransmitters like dopamine, you know, you know serotonins, epinephrines, norepinephrines. Yeah. Uh, and so building towards a large 12 year goal becomes, you know, it's a massive hit. 
know, and then all of a sudden you're standing on the podium and you're seeing your flag being raised and you're, you're, you're being celebrated. You're one, it's a great moment. And then people are celebrating that great moment and you're just flooded with all of these good, you know, hormones and emotions. You're saying, this is amazing. I want to do that again. <laughs> and, and then, uh, one month later, well, it's, it, when's that your brain starts saying, when's that podium thing going to show up? You know, when, when are we going to have that flag and the songs and the celebrations yeah. and the party? Are we going to do that again? No. Okay. No. Yeah. How about now? <laughs> no, we'll figure it out. We'll figure something else out. I guess. <laughs> we'll figure out something. Yeah. So there's, you know, I think that there is a, you know, I personally felt, you know, emptiness after, you know, certainly after the Olympics, but I felt like I dealt with it more earlier on in my career where I had, um, or, or I felt more of an element of listlessness when we first won our world championships. And that's when I, I couldn't articulate it at the time, but that's when I first truly started to live more of a values driven life. Because we had won the world championships and picture this, you're 22 years old, you're heavyweight champion of the world, you're written, it's the first time the Canadian men's eight had ever won a world champs. So history, you made history, uh, you're feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, for sure. <laughs> but then you feel a little, but then I remember getting back to Victoria where we were training and living at the time and just thinking and feeling depressed and listless and Mm -hmm. lacking motivation. And as I went through this, you know, mild existential crisis, trying to look for a little bit more, you know, meaning and purpose, I did a couple things. One, I started visiting schools and, you know, speaking in schools. And two, I became a big brother through big brothers and sisters. Amazing. And those two things, you know, they're in alignment with my, you know, my personal value set. You know, I, 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 I value making a loving connection with people and I value, value leaving a, a generous impact on, you know, on the world and, the, and those I interact with. And I wasn't, you know, I was able to make deep connections with the people I was rowing with, but um, sometimes you're in, when you're in competition, the bonds are, are slightly different. Uh, For sure. Yeah. And then from an impact standpoint, you know, athletics and athletic pursuit is very selfish. Um, you know, achievement is selfish in and of itself. Uh, the, Interesting. Yeah. And so to achieve is like, oh, it's for me, 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 which I think, again, is good. And you need to do it. Like I said, if you achieve nothing in your 20s and 30s, you're going to pay for it in your 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to lean into uh, lean into your youth and and find something that you can, you know, that you can work on and gain some expertise in and and build your skills. Um, so the transition from sport, you know, it it gave me pause to think and try to figure out how to align a career with my you know with my purpose and my values, and that's you know that's why I stayed on the track of one. Uh, you know, teaching and training, and then eventually moved into, you know, strategic planning and, and executive coaching, because it, um, you know, it was alignment with who I am, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, what my gifts were, what my skill set was, and what my values were, what my purpose, uh, what my purpose is. And, and so then, but then it's, it is difficult making a transition because you're moving so slow. When you're at the top yeah. of the game and the top of your field, you you can have an urgency and execute upon that urgency and see see the results. But when you're starting again at the bottom of the ladder, it can be very very frustrating. Uh, and business and results don't come as quickly as you would otherwise think. Um, so there is that point in time where you're, you know, when you're transitioning from athletics and your, you know, your brain is, is, um, craving the high (laughs) and it was, and then you're not having the results that you want, uh, as fast as you want. 
And so that's the, I think that's just a normal experience, right? That's a normal experience of life. And it's, you know, it happens to athletes, but I think sometimes it also happens to people when they graduate from university or you jump into a trade and you say, huh, okay, I've got this trade, but wait a second, it takes years to become you know, you know, to become a red seal at, at yeah. your trade, or you start a business, you, you think you understand that business, or you start a podcast, oh, it takes years to really slot in and gain mastery of, of all the different yeah. pieces and put one it day together. at a time. Yeah, one day, <laughs> one at, a day time. at a time. Right. And we have to remind ourselves of that, because that the power, the like, there's power in having big vision, being able to see the future, but then it's, you know, it can also be exhausting uh, and uh, and demotivating. So it's you know, it's remembering you know to focus on the small steps and the small wins. That's that's huge, and I think there's something to be said for that. Like I have a lot of, I know a handful of people that have gone through this where they, it's like you said, urgency. It's like oh, we're switching it. Nobody wants to go halfway up the hill and go oh, we can't take this path, go back down and then rec- like start climbing again. It's not fun. And like you said, especially if you're like, if you're at an expert level or world or global scale of something, being able to kind of restart and do that is very, very, it's hard. It's not easy. Even just trying new things is tough, right? We get so comfortable, so easy doing stuff like that, that we want to be able to make our own or make something out of. And I find myself every day having those like conscious decisions where i'm like okay yeah just you know like doing the research on guests like just okay do a bit more or read these books about conversation and charisma like those little things that you can do that are it's tough to pick up a book and read it let alone read it when you're doing a hundred different things and trying to scale everything at once right it's being able to kind of be patient at the same time i think is a very very interesting skill set and i'm wondering if there's an underrated skill that you've seen in your years that has been something that's made the transition from whether it be olympics to business or business to speaking stuff like that if there's a skill that's that you would uh, preach to um people that's like this is yeah. one to develop to make that well, process to, smoother to hurry slowly essentially yeah the, yes the <laughs> I'm a big fan of meditation. Interesting. And meditation was, it took me a while to discover it. When I was a rower, I was essentially meditating for four to six hours every single day. It was just the nature of our sport because you're just, you're focusing so intently on this boring ass motion, right? Blade in the water, pull, take the blade out over and over. Oh, now I can move my hand like this. Now move it like that. Now move it just, oh, no. Yep. Okay. And so it's an intense amount of focus on a fairly benign and esoteric movement. Right. And I, it was maybe two years after I had retired from Olympic training and I was still doing some, uh, you know, bike riding and, you know, getting out there and adventuring, but I didn't have the same, you know, daily discipline of, of that style of sport when I was introduced to transcendental meditation, uh, which is, you know, you know, it's a form of meditation where you get a, you know, I'll, I'll call it a nonsense word, but I think they'll call it a, some kind of spiritual word that yeah. you're saying over Always. and over in your, yeah. in your head <clears throat> and you focus on the word and then sometimes thoughts come up and sometimes no thoughts come up. You know, other times you have these, uh, you know, transcend feelings, or you'll have like your, your nervous system will send a shock from your head down, you know, into your groin and you'll, you'll feel like you're vibrating. Yeah. Other times you'll just be there and nothing will happen, but learning how to meditate and get into a meditative state. uh, I'd recognized it as, as an athlete. And I think that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to the sport because that's what helped me focus. Uh, is meditation. And I'll, I'll find that if I don't keep up my meditation practice, 
I start to lose control of my focus and my emotions uh, more than I would like. Uh, and, you know, as an Olympian and someone who has high personal standards, you start to, you, you start to beat yourself up when you're not living up to that standard. Right. And that, um, that I've found is one of the most reliable interventions when things are start to not work out for me is to start sitting down and meditating twice a day for 20 minutes. Ironically, it doesn't, I don't feel the effects in the first day or two, but by day four or five, everything just clicks back into what I need it to Whoa. be. And so that's a, a, it's a fascinating exercise. And and so I'd say that's one, that's one piece. And even from a meditation standpoint, from a, this is, this is an exercise I do on a regular basis. As I'm sitting here in front of my computer, I draw a little, I've drawn a little target that you've seen right here. Yeah. And I do 30 seconds on one minute off 60 seconds on one minute off 90 seconds on one minute off before I have to do a long period of work in front of my computer screen. Because uh, otherwise oh. I find it's hard to focus, but I'll, I'll do that. And I, foc I, get, I try to focus right at the center point of the target. And I'll notice for the first 30 seconds, it's hard to, to focus. And then I can, I can get it. Then I take a break and I go back and take a break. And then I do it again. And wow. that actually comes from some scientific research out of Japan where they showed when kids would do this exercise before they work, they actually were able to perform at a higher level. So you're like priming your brain for focus or long-term focus that's about to occur. Mm -hmm. which, which makes sense because yeah. as an athlete, I would, uh, I would prime my body. I would do activation exercises. I would do stretches. I would warm up before I would do my work. And so this is the, just the same. I'm doing brain work. So can I prime my brain to do the work that needs to be done? So those, you know, so figuring out how to rush slowly, you know, meditation, focus, being present, you know, often the anxiety comes when we're living too far in the future and we're, we're constantly trying to make plans or juggle things yeah. or, um, you know, you know, or worrying about, you know, am I doing the right thing? Or we feel overwhelmed because we're carrying too much in our brain. Uh, so that, that tends to be what works for me, you know, in this, you know, as I work as, as a knowledge worker, essentially, you know, meditation, focusing on that writing, writing everything down. I write lists all the time, all the time. Yeah all the time lists 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 but those are the ways that you know i've found useful to um you know to stay focused that and getting getting a coach you know i've you know i've hired many many coaches and i have coaches a coach now uh, just to um make sure that i'm focusing on the right things and i'm working with other people because there is i'm i do a lot of work alone uh, so I need to make sure that I have an element of uh, accountability and a soundboard yeah. uh, outside of outside of myself, uh, just to help bring again focus. So much of it is about focus. <laughs> so meditation for focus, list for focus, focusing mm -hmm. targets for focus, talking to the coach for focus. You know, am I doing the right thing at the right time? Because I only have so much time and energy to you know to achieve what I want to achieve. Right. And the execution in that, I think, is huge, right? Being able to figure out, like, I think the last, because uh, I had this recently happen to me, like something similar to what you're uh, talking about, where I did, yeah, it was just, it was a weird depression. Like, it was a couple of weeks, I just wasn't sure, like, the business was doing well. So I was like, what's going on? Podcast was doing well. So I was like, this is weird. Um, but yeah, just really weird anxiety. So going through kind of figuring out, I went for a swim because I'm training to do this marathon in uh, mm -hmm. Lake Huron this summer, but 
I uh, was in the water swimming in the pool and going through my brain, looking back and going the most time, the time that I was most productive was in the last year of my, of college, where all I did was lists and meditate. Mm. Not twice a day. I'm not a, not as a hardcore, but I did do it once a day. It was like, I had like a 10 to 15 minute regimen where it was similar trying to bring myself back to, yeah, like you said, the present moment. All right. And realizing how, important that is and it's not so much just the whole like you're living out here it's like just bring it back live now don't worry about everything that you can't control because the future is going to happen eventually anyway why rush it right exactly well and it's called it's the process of centering of of grounding of being in your authentic self you know when we're we're thinking of the future and we're thinking of things that we can't control we're out here we're we're looking around and there's, you know, there's, there's benefit to that. And there's benefit to pulling in lots of different pieces of information, integrating it and creating something new from that. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, the crux of it is the ability to, you know, to do work and it's a lifelong discipline. It's uh, you know, it's, and you call it a discipline because I don't feel like I'll ever perfect it. I think I'll always be, I'll have ideals and demands on myself larger than I'll be ever be able to perform. Um, right. Like there's, you know, there's a humility even that you have to bring, you know, to your tasks and your work that, uh, you know, that sometimes the work can be, you know, can feel so great, but like, you know, yeah, these little depressions, and lacks of motivation they're they're real and they're constant mm-hmm. and i don't i don't think that they ever leave but when you understand the when you understand the discipline of it you can be less anxious about the depression or you could be less anxious about yeah. the lack of uh, you say oh well if, am i doing my work readiness routine you know, do my writing down my list, my priorities, am I doing my meditation? Do I, am I engaging my focus? Am I remembering what I'm grateful for? And am I living my values? Am I moving? You know, am I expressing my purpose? And then reminding yourself of these things and slowing down, you know, allows you to achieve, achieve more and create more. That, at the end of the day, I think we're happiest as humans when we are creating. Mm -hmm. I think so too. And it's something that has been very, very like almost shunned in what seems to be recent years where the ability to create is huge, but there's a lot of turn away to it. Cause I guess everybody's, it almost seems like everything's the same, like good luck doing something new right? It's like, it's just a different version of something else somebody's already done, which is tough because sometimes it's like, you want to feel so good being able to create and do have your own ideas come to life. Right. But then at the same time, you're battling the it's, I think it's all just the way media is portrayed, but that's just a, that's just another thing altogether. So, yeah, well, I, I agree with you. It's, it is a competitive marketplace yet, you know, each of us has a voice that, Mm. brings a unique perspective uh, to play and the audience that finds it and listens to it can, you know, can gain, gain a lot from it. So yeah, it, you know, it's about creation, but what I've also found is that it's also about marketing. You have to create it. Then you have to work on getting the word out there about what you've created. And can you, uh, can you, can you market your content? as well as you can, you know, you can make the most beautiful thing. And if nobody hears about it or nobody knows about it, then yeah. it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. You, you don't say, so I have, uh, I have a good friend of mine who's going to attempt to be the largest person this summer to swim the, or sorry, going to attempt to be the per- first person to swim the largest uh, freshwater Island in the world, Manitoulin Island on uh, George Bay. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, wow. But he's gonna- yeah. Right. So it's 350 kilometers. It's going to be a month straight of marathon swims. So I'm looking forward to doing oh. a day with him for sure. Um, that's the 10 K I was mentioning training for, but 
what uh, his the vision is, is ideally um, using that as a platform or stepping stone to push and drive a similar like a speaking career. Mm-hmm. And so for people similar to him who want to, who've done something big or have done a few things that are big or of scale as like what the world would consider. And then how would you like any advice for people stepping into a speaking role? Like what makes a good speech keynote speech to you? Well, well the best keynote speeches are driven by personal experience. One, two, uh, you are sharing your learnings along the way. And the learnings are usually at your low points or your points of weakness. If you come up and you say, I swam around Manitoulin Island because I am the best, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you can learn from me because I'm the best. That sucks. You know, so yeah, for sure. people are, people are most interested in, uh, in the challenges you've faced on your journey and the people that you've met and the lessons that they've taught you. Mm-hmm. So if you can share a story and I talked about the archetypal story where you have an origin, where did you come from? You cross a threshold who or what pushed you across the threshold. Uh, you go into another world, Uh, which is very unique. So you swim around Manitoulin Island, maybe you run across some fish or some, you have a crazy experience at that time. And then you come on the other side and you've learned something. Uh, So what did you learn from that journey? uh, And what can you share from that? And so that's the, that's the general uh, story framework. And then if someone's looking to build a career in, in, as a speaker, you have to keep giving speeches until people come up to you afterwards and ask you to give other ones. And if you give a speech and two people come up af- afterwards and say, hey, I'd like you to speak at my event. And then you go and you speak twice. And at each of those two events, after that, two people come up to you and ask you to speak at their events, then you're on to something. Yeah. So the, the challenge, though, is to build up the competence and to put in the reps because you're not going to start as a speaker with a great speech. No. You probably have to rework, I'd say, for every, you know, for every minute you deliver in a great speech, you should probably have an hour of, of practice. So a 60 minute speech, you should probably have at least 60 hours of practice. Uh, and that's just to deliver the first one. And you'll be really excellent at it after a few years of doing it. And, you know, you'll probably need, yeah, five, 10,000 hours of, you know, of delivering speeches to be able to truly own the stage and to give great speeches uh, so that, you know, to turn that into a, you know, into a full career, it has to be again about more than the swim because people don't want to hear, you know, they do cut, they'd be curious to hear about yeah. the swim. It only goes so far though, right? Well, it goes so far. And th- what is the market for that? I think right. you can have, you ha- you can have some fun telling stories and you need to decide where you want to go with it because you could write adventure stories and give, you know, tell and go on other adventures and use that to fuel your, you know, use your storytelling and writing and creation to fuel future adventures, which is a valid thing to do, but that requires, um, that's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I'd, you know, I'd be curious as to what, you you know, and I, I guess it's, what I can speak to is my own experience in that I learned how to frame my own story in the context of, um, you know, mid, mid career leaders Mm -hmm. and that, you know, and using my story of going to the Olympics of rowing across an ocean and framing it, you know, as people are going through change or as, uh, people are leading others or building teams is a useful, um, you know, a useful skill set, and you can see it. You can see it on my because I've got a book, the Responsibility Ethic. How I've, you know, how I've made that 
into it. The book is, you know, you can download the audiobook for free on YouTube. Uh, we've uploaded it there, or you can, uh, you can buy it on platforms. I know my, my little brother through big brothers and sisters, I gave him all the electronic documents. So he's uploaded it to the, to the free part of the, the, the web too, for all the, all you cheap people just leaving high school. <laughs> <ape writing. clears throat> it's it should be out there. <laughs> cause I too was once like you. I, yeah. I now buy all my books on audible just cause it's I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So that's a good uh, transition actually. Um, with the being a coach for mid-level career and executives, um, what has been something in terms of like, do you have a favorite moment that's occurred so far or like a breakthrough moment that's just kind of like, that's really been like, I'm trying to articulate it, but it's really kind of felt your purpose fulfilled when you do something like that. Like, do you have a example of one that you're able to share or just a, I, yeah. I feel like I'm doing it every single day as I work with these leaders and I have the conversations, you know, I had one, I had one this morning and, you know, I was working with this guy who's been in his industry for 40 years and we're working through different, you know, leadership and management principles and I'm supporting him and he's, he's growing his business and we're making steps forward and, I love it. I love the conversations. I love learning from these individuals, learning from these leaders and, and sharing the knowledge I've learned from others. You know, yes, you know, yesterday I worked with a couple of other leaders. One, uh, she runs a pathology group down in California. And again, she's dealing with issues with the board, you know, board leaning into her. And so we're, again, we're working through some of these challenges and problems and setting up her career so and setting up her business so that she can live with integrity and keep the business alive and support the people she's leading and, you know, deliver demands, you know, to the board. And so I'd say that that's, I'm reminded that I'm doing the right thing every single day that I do it. Uh, that's, I am not reminded that I'm doing the right thing when I have to lean into marketing and self-promotion and uh, pushing myself out there because that's what I, that's what I do not enjoy. <laughs> that's, you know, I'm, I'm naturally, it's funny because if you look around, I'm very out there, uh, yeah. but I'm naturally a very, um, you know, I like to, I enjoy connecting with people, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to be, be very private. And, uh, yeah. but I, but again, I've, I've over, I've overcome that, that drive for privacy with this desire to serve, you know, mid-level leaders. And, uh, and that is, that's more of the driving force that's out there. So, um, Doing the work motivates all the other, you know, administrative backend pieces that require that are required to have a business like this because it's, you know, the work is very enjoyable, but the other pieces are necessary. So you have to have marketing, you have to track your expenses, you have to do the finances, you have to put mm -hmm. it together, the strategic plan, you have to create the content, you have to put things yeah. out there, you have to build the relationships, you got to take the risks. So, yeah, I truly enjoy doing, doing the work, um, doing the work to do the work is less enjoyable, Yeah, <laughs> but it is necessary. You don't say. <laughs> so thus the meditation, the lists, the target of focus, the coach. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so Adam, as we're going to get to the tail end of, um, the conversation today, um, do you have one final piece or message that you'd like to share or story you want to share or piece of advice or lesson that uh, you'd like to share with uh, the audience today before we close? Well, I just want to reiterate the point. When you are a young person, you need to achieve something. So you need to achieve something hard. So don't fool yourself. Don't medicate yourself out of a situation. Uh, don't. Uh, 
you know, don't remove yourself from, uh, from your potential. It, you are going to set up the rest of your life, life, you know, your forties and fifties and sixties feel a long way away when you're in your twenties, but they're not, and they'll be here soon enough. And the work that you do now will set yourself up for very good um, middle age and definitely the best time of your life. You know, when I work with people who are in, you know, their sixties plus when you've lived a life where you've accomplished things, when you've figured out how to accept your lot in life and you've found your true lane, uh, then you can live in love and integrity in the last bit of your life and truly, um, you know, truly enjoy what life is about. I love it. Amazing. Um, yeah. Where do you, uh, where can uh, people find you? Um, where can people connect with you? Where can they uh, reach out and stuff like that? I'm active on, uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So nice. you'll, you'll see a lot of positive philosophy uh, and, you know, work uh, insights on Twitter as well as on uh, LinkedIn. So those are the two places where you can connect with me. Uh, just look for my name, Adam Creek with a K. Awesome. So Adam, I'm really uh, grateful for your time today. Um, I know we went over your, uh, your schedule time I saw, but um, I really appreciate it. I'm grateful. I'm looking forward to putting your story out there, sharing it. And it was nice, I guess, seeing you again. <laughs> yeah, so, well, it was nice to see you again, too. Awesome. So I'm going to stop.